Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. My name is Peter Buckland, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ Church. And I have the privilege of bringing you this morning's message. Mark Christian, our senior minister, will be back with us next week. If you are visiting with us, welcome to a study of the Gospels and the life of Jesus. We are taking a look at Jesus' life chronologically from beginning through his ascension to heaven. And we've been stopping along the way to take a look at the significant theological truths that Jesus wants us to know about himself and about the kingdom of God and how we should live and how we can embrace those truths and make them our own. We're also studying how we can treat people the way that Jesus treated them so that we could have the same level of care and respect that he had. One of the most amazing truths that we have uncovered along the way is that Jesus wants a relationship with each one of us. That it doesn't matter where we have come from, it doesn't matter our station in life, it doesn't matter how we have been treated, Jesus extends to us the offer of an invitation to have a relationship with him, to make him the most important person in our lives and the central relationship around which our entire life is organized. He gave that same invitation to the people of his day. And we have seen how Jesus had conversations with the rich and the powerful and the down and the out. We've seen how he's had conversations with the advocates of those that had no voice as well as those that found their voice. We've seen how he's taken care of those that have been sick and demon-possessed and disenfranchised. We've seen how he's been tender to those that are grieving and have lost loved ones. And last week, we even saw how he stood up at the Feast of the Tabernacles and said in a loud voice, if anyone would follow me, let him come after me and rivers of living water will flow from him, which was a prophecy about the Holy Spirit. That same invitation is the invitation that Jesus extends to you. He wants to have that kind of a connection with you. But you know that it's way easy to talk about a relationship, and it's much harder to have one. And there are obstacles that can get in our way of having a relationship with God. And one of those obstacles is this nagging feeling in the back of our minds that in some way, even though we're forgiven, God will find something unworthy about us. And we won't have the kind of promised closeness and abundant life that Scripture would have us to believe is ours. This nagging voice in the back of our mind is shame. Shame is this sense of alienation, this sense that no matter what I do, I'm still going to be rejected. That if you really knew what my story was, you really wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And our text today deals with this very significant block that affects all of us. And we're going to see this incredible encounter that Jesus had with this woman who was caught in sin, and how Jesus humanized her, and how he personalized a relationship with her, and how he invited her into a relationship that removed her shame. We're going to see that we can do the same thing in the place of Jesus for the people around us. 
Our text today is John chapter 7, verses 53 through 811. And this is the passage of the woman who was caught in adultery. The Jewish leaders had wanted her to be stoned. And you will notice that in your Bibles, that many of today's editors will comment that this passage of Scripture was not included in the earliest manuscripts. It is true that before 300 AD, the Western Bibles did not have this at all. And what we have come to find out is that this was probably a part of an oral tradition. One of the church fathers, Arrhenius, did mention this, and he lived between 130 and 202 AD, and he viewed this as a true account. And as the editors would look at this, and the people who looked at the canon evaluated this particular narrative, they decided that it was so much like Jesus that it should be included. They didn't always know where to include it, and so it was put in various places in the earliest editions of the Bible, but it has landed at the beginning of John chapter 8, probably for this reason. When we read the text today, you will notice that in verse 5, the Jewish leaders had stones in their hands, and they wanted to pelt this woman. And we will find out later on when we look at this chapter in verse 59 that the Jewish leaders had picked up stones to stone Jesus. You are looking at the hard-heartedness of the Jewish leaders. And so the editors have probably placed this here in order to bookend it with the potential of stoning on both ends. But in the middle of this narrative is this amazing encounter of Jesus with this woman in the midst of hard-heartedness that he restores her and removes her shame. We are considering this text because we are considering the heart of God for you. This is the way that God treats us, and this is a part of our story. So let's take a look at this passage and read it together this morning. John chapter 7, beginning in 53. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman. Jesus straightened up and he he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Wouldn't you like to serve a Jesus like this? In your worst moment, wouldn't you like to have a Jesus like this who can look into you and see what your deepest need is and know that you don't need to be condemned, but you need to be provided an opportunity for a shame-free relationship where your sins are forgiven and you can walk into the plan of God for your life. You see, as Christians, we are not to be defined by the devastation of what sin does to us. And to live in the pain of that story 
We are to be defined by the author of our life, Jesus Christ himself, who says that we are the children of God, and he's going to take our story and redeem it and bring us into joy. That is the God that we serve, and we are going to see how he did that for this woman today. So let's take a look at the cast of characters in this shame narrative. First of all, we see the shamers, which are the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and the witnesses who act in this despicable way to bring this woman to Jesus to trap him. They know that if Jesus said to stone this lady, that he would be guilty of insurrection against Rome, and he could be arrested and maybe even killed, which is really what they were hoping that they could do. And if Jesus dismissed the sin and forgave her, then they would say that he did not believe in the law of Moses. Now, on a side note, to add some tension in the story, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7 says that the witnesses, those that pulled this woman right to Jesus from the very act of this sin, are the first ones to stone her. They were the ones that saw this. And so, no doubt, the witnesses were right there, and they had stones in their hands as well. And they knew that they had an iron-clad trap for Jesus, or at least they thought they did. Now, when you and I look at this story, we see that there are really some problems here. I mean, where was the guy? I mean, realistically, why was this lady brought? Well, it was probably because they had trapped her, or they had in some way enticed her, or they, may, they were maybe watching what was going on, and they just decided to grab her. Maybe, maybe the man was in on it in some way. I mean, this is full of suspicion, because this woman was dragged and shamed and traumatized. So let's talk about her. As the shamed person, she was brought before Jesus, probably in some kind of a wrapping, in the middle of this crowd that wanted blood. They wanted to stone her. She would no doubt, if she survived, live a life of perpetual shame in an honor-shame culture. Then there's Jesus, the shame remover, who's watching all of this going on. He's being pressured to make a misstep so that in some way he might be accused so he could be arrested or killed. So as we unpack this narrative today and look at these three big cast of characters, there are three points that this text teaches us about. The first is about a shamer. A shamer's heart is blind to the generous love of God. The second is about us in our own shame. And a shamed heart struggles to find the generous love of God. And the third one is when we are freed from shame, and it is a heart freed from shame, can be restored to the generous love of God. So, let's consider the shamers. A shamed heart is blind to the generous love of God. Now, in this narrative, Jesus is not saying that adultery does not matter. Some people will say that. But in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the law of Moses clearly states that when a man and a woman are caught in adultery, that this is a capital offense. So the question is, is why would Jesus sidestep this capital offense? The reason is, is that there is a sin greater than adultery in this passage. And that sin is a hardness of heart toward God's love toward people. You see, the Jewish leaders and the witnesses showed no concern for the law of love that was also stated in Leviticus Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
The great question that the Old Testament would ask in this situation is how does their behavior show that they love this woman and how does it show that they love Jesus? They obviously did not. And all of their actions demonstrate that the hardness of their heart had no place for God's love for these two people. They were trying to create a legal and a moral problem for Jesus. And while attacking Jesus, they lavished shame on this woman to humiliate her and validate their own self-righteous position. You see, the greater sin is that their power, their position, their prestige was way more important than anything Jesus would ever have to say to them. They wanted Jesus out of the picture And their hard heart was the justification for treating people this way. These shamers were blind to God's grace and love. Spiritual leaders in every generation are to care for the people in their congregations. They are not to treat people in such demeaning and devaluing ways. You see the lost and the wounded, the disenfranchised, those that are kind of cast aside and marginalized are to be loved into the kingdom of God and not shamed away from God because of their behavior, because of their words, because of their lifestyle. We can all become shamers when we lose touch with the amazing gift of salvation that Jesus has given to us. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12, reminds us that when we, as Christians, were under the power of sin, that no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together have become worthless, shameful. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we need to remember that not only did Jesus forgive us, but he took away our shame. And part of our job now is to help take away the shame of others. We once were worthless, but now our value has been restored and we know what it feels like to be shame-free. If we stop focusing on our daily need for Jesus, we can begin to put shame giving language back into our vocabulary. So we need to stay focused on our spiritual priorities or it's really easy for us to go back to old patterns of behavior and we could resurrect the tendency to shame others. Our priority is to love God and to love other people. And Jesus himself gave us this priority in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. When he was asked this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So loving God and loving people keep our focus in the right place. Or we could be tempted to go back to shaming language and forget that everybody is created in the image of God. And Jesus offers a relationship to each human being. There's no doubt that today or tomorrow, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, you will have an opportunity to give shaming language or not. If you have children, it happens all the time. If you're angry with somebody, it can happen. If there's pressure placed upon you, you could offer shaming language. You see, we can fall back into the same kind of lifestyle that Christ has freed us from. Let this passage be a reminder that we have an opportunity to help break the cycle of shame and bring people into a better way of living. So let's consider now the shamed woman. 
A shamed heart struggles to find the generous love of God. So we're going to tread lightly here because in a congregation as big as Christ Church, we know that there are stories of guilt and shame that are going on right now. And it's not my intention to kick into that. It's my intention to show the path all the way through to what Jesus would have for us. And so let's take a look at what guilt and shame are and how they play a role in our lives. Guilt is the recognition that I have done something wrong. And as a result of doing that, I need to seek forgiveness and to change what I am thinking, what I am saying, and how I am behaving. And guilt is a motivator for change. I feel bad. Shame, on the other hand, is about alienation. It's about disconnection. It's about worthlessness. It's unproductive, and it stops the change process. It's a demotivator, and it traps us in this emotional turmoil and despair that just keeps happening over and over again. Brene Brown is probably the premier researcher on shame in America today. And this is her definition of shame. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It is the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. We could think I'm not worthy or good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. So let's just stop And grab our collective breath. Because this woman's story can be our story. But let me be perfectly clear. You belong with God. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. God beckons you. He calls you. The cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus was so meaningful and so great. That there is a clear path right to the Father's hearts and shame stands in its way guilt moves us there but shame stops us i want you to know that christ church this church is a place where you can tell your story it's a place where you can get the help that you need and find out what your next steps are so that you can walk out of shame and live the kind of abundant life that jesus would want for you to live so the first step to that is to raise our hands and to accept the guilt that is causing the shame we admit that we have acted in ways that we should not have acted and we have said things that we, have not, that we should not have said. And as a result of that, we recognize that yes, we indeed are guilty. And we admit our guilt, we confess our guilt, we confess our faults, we come to Jesus and we find out what our next steps are. He accepts us. And I want you to know that at Christ Church, we will accept you and we will help you find your next steps. This is the process that the leaders should have followed with this woman with the law of love. Instead, they wanted Jesus to condemn her the way that they had. They thought that they had this iron-clad trap with Jesus because how in the world could he forgive somebody caught in this very act? Let's go back to the text. At this point, Jesus didn't say anything, but he stooped down and he started drawing on the ground or writing on the ground. Various commentators think that maybe Jesus doodled on the ground and just kind of moved his finger along to show contempt for the religious leaders and what they were doing. Jesus already knew what he was going to do and he was frustrating them. Some people think that maybe Jesus was actually writing out the sins of the various people that were in the crowd. Well, as I was preparing for this, I thought, wouldn't it be just like Jesus to write a message to this woman? Now, I don't know that all women could read like all men couldn't read, but for the sake of this illustration, let's make her a reader. And so here she is, 
with her head bowed, all kind of scrunched on over, looking down at the ground. And wouldn't it be just like Jesus to try to communicate with her? And so I've envisioned that if that was the case and he knew that she could read, maybe he wrote something like, God still loves you. You are still God's child. We'll never know this side of heaven what Jesus actually wrote. But after he got done writing, he stood up and he said these famous words that resonate with wisdom and with justice. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he dropped back down on the ground and let his words just linger over the crowd. You see, this was the time for the witnesses to cast the first stone. This was the time for the leaders to cast their stones. But there is no doubt that they were stunned. They did not expect this at all. Because what Jesus was essentially saying was this. If you have no sin, then you have the right to judge this woman. Therefore, judge her righteously. And in your righteous judgment, if you think that she needs to be stoned, then you cast the stone. Well, nobody was up to that. Nobody was up to casting the first stone. And so one by one, from the oldest down, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And now we have come to the shame removal. This is the guts of the passage. A heart freed from shame can be restored to the generous love of God. So before we move on, let's just kind of put ourselves in the place of this woman for just a moment. What do you suppose that she was thinking and feeling Just moments before, she didn't know if she would live or die. Her heart was pounding. Her blood was racing. She had this sense of fear that was dominating her mind and her senses. She probably had a slumped over body, just kind of waiting for either condemning words or the feeling of some stones against her. She probably dared not hope for any mercy at all. So when Jesus stood up and looked at her face to face and asked, where are your accusers? She may have looked around for the first time and saw scattered stones that were just kind of lying on around her. And she said, I don't know where they are. This is the moment Jesus was waiting for. This is what he was leading the entire situation to experience. This is the interaction that we want to have also. When we stand before Jesus and we're guilty and we have shame, we hear worthlessness in our ears. We even tell ourselves that we are worthless. And how in the world could we have done that one more time? And we are our own shame givers. Jesus knows we're guilty. We know we're guilty. Jesus knows that we feel shame. We know that we feel shame. But Jesus did not come to condemn us or to heap shame on us. He came to seek us and save us and restore us to him. Probably the significant passage of scripture that most of us know is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus had no intention of condemning this woman. He has no intention of condemning you. He has the intention to save her and the intention to save you and to give her a shame-free life. You are now looking at the very heart of God that you and I can hold on to in our most dire moments. Jesus' death on the cross not only removed our guilt, but he removed our shame as well. And so Jesus, 
said something astounding to this woman. I do not condemn you either. So the creator of the world, the author of her life, the man who walked on water, the one who cast out demons, the one who fed 5,000, the one who raised the dead did not condemn her. And when you come to him, he will not condemn you either. So how is shame removed? Let's go back to the text. First of all, he humanizes the situation. He treats her like a person. Secondly, he personalizes the conversation that he has with her. And then he conveys value and offers a relationship. And he says, I don't condemn you. So he humanizes and he personalizes and he gives value and he offers a relationship. And when the creator of the world, the one who made you, says, I am willing to be your friend. I am willing to be in a relationship with you. Your alienation is over because he will give you the life that he intends for you to have. Well, once that happened, Jesus told her to leave her life of sin. Oh, now this is the hard part where Jesus meddles. This is the part we don't like. If we keep doing the same things over and over again that create guilt and shame, we're gonna live in this continual cycle of misery. And this is the hard part. Jesus has a new way of life. And we, as a church, have been studying that new way. We've been looking at how can I put that into my life so that I can go on and live the abundant life that Jesus would want me to live. And here Jesus is saying, to end your shame for good, you must turn to me and embrace the life that I have for you. So let's say that we do that. How are we going to live a shame-free life once we are freed from its debilitating grip? There are four steps that I want to give to you today to consider. Step number one is that we need to focus on this new life, this new creation in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we are told that we are new creations in Christ and that we are to set our minds on that new creation. In order for us to turn away from sin and embrace a life that is different, embrace a shame-free life, we need to know what that is and we need to set that in front of us every single day. Secondly, we need to apply God's grace to our emotions. Oh, we'll remember the shame. We'll remember the words. In fact, we might actually remember when we would talk to ourselves in such demeaning ways. But we need to hold on to the progress that we're making and recognize that we are making steps to go forward and that we can see those definable steps. The third step is to pray that God will stabilize our emotions. God doesn't want us to feel super close to him one day and super alienated the next day. He wants this sense of stability and reciprocity with us. And so we need him to stabilize us and help for us to be able to see him clearly every single day the way that he wants us to. And even if the people around us are skeptical, we can see the progress that we're making. Step number four is that we have to keep talking about our story to a trusted friend, to somebody who loves us and cares about us. Because that relationship is the Jesus relationship. That's the relationship that loves us and cares about us, even when we are afraid that we are being alienated. That's where you and I come in. That's where you will have an opportunity with the people in your life to stand in that position and hear their story and say, you have value. And let me pray that God will work in your life. And let me turn you over in your relationship with Christ and help you to figure out what your next steps are. This is our commitment with each other. That when we tell our stories and we are not sure if we are shame-free or not, or when shame creeps back in, we're gonna turn to each other and we're gonna remind each other of these amazing truths going to remind each other of this story right here that Jesus frees us from our shame that we might be able to live with him.
So where are you today? If you have never named the name of Jesus, this is your time to become guilt-free and shame-free. And after this worship time is over, if you go out into the lobby area to the prayer center, we'd be happy to talk to you there about accepting Christ. But better yet, if you came with a friend who knows Jesus, have that conversation because that friend knows your story and knows how important it is to walk through your story with you. And if you're like hundreds of Christians that live today that feel shame, you can put that down by coming to Christ and finding a person to tell your story to who will love you all the way through it, through every consequence, through every up, through every down, to help you to find the new life that Christ offers to you. So today, Lord, give us the courage to move to you and to lay down our shame. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.